We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We are here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Dom Palumbo. Hi. Damn glad to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you get that popcorn out? The popcorn, I literally yeah. almost became an episode of Midwest Murder <laughs> up here earlier. It was, it was scary. And then popcorn. I just, I, I got uncomfortable and laughed. It was, it was weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Imagine. Yeah, so, so we're coming at you from DCR Brewing Company in Fargo. Big shout out to Sam and crew. These guys make delicious beer. They've always taken care of us here on our trips to Fargo. And I want to say to all of our fans and listeners out there, DCR beer is available in a ton of places. So be sure to check it out and support these guys. We, we really do appreciate them. We appreciate all of you for being here with us. We'd also like to give a thank you to everyone who has taken the time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes and or Spotify. That feedback really means a lot to us, good or bad. We really appreciate it. We Don, do. Yeah, That's we true. do. Yeah, That's Ups true. and downs, strikes and gutters with some of them, you know. So, Don, I'm kind of curious. What are folks saying about Midwest Murder these days? Well, I think we're going to go with some positive ones today because last episode was, you know, a little... A little rough, I think, but it's four it's stars. Good. It's we still got four stars. Yeah. You know, I'm not, you know, still thinking about it or anything, but it's fine. Um, all right. So poker with like some smiley faces in there uh, gave us five stars. Comedy junkie turned true crime fanatic. The thought of listening to a true crime podcast was the absolute last thing I thought I would want to hear about. <laughs> so glad you're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm more of a ha ha person, not a those poor people person. However, from the first episode of this podcast, I was hooked. Jonah and Don do a fantastic job captivating their listeners, keeping respect for victims, and even satisfy my want to giggle with their sibling-like banter. Very well produced and researched indeed. Thank well, you. I like that. Thanks. I, I, like, I like the recognition that we're sibling-like, that you, <laughs> right. you hit the nail on the right. head there. Yeah, sometimes <clears throat> it gets weird, and they're like, oh my gosh, what does your wife think about that? And it's like, I don't know, what does she think about that? It's not me. <laughs> and yeah. and I am, I'm with poker in that I'm more of a ha-ha person, not a those poor people yeah, person. Absolutely. I'm, I'm also not a true crime fanatic. In fact, Don Palumbo is the only true crime podcast I listen to. So Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm... So I'm your biggest fan. So glad you're here. That's I'm your biggest fan. I yeah. dare anybody to challenge me on that. All right. Well, Poker, thank you so much. A military wife, 66, gave us four stars. I'm addicted. I'm a little, tra- I'm a little traumatized from the last four star review we got. <laughs> Where's this going? Where's this going? But anyway, I'm addicted. I do not generally listen to podcasts. Last year, I began listening to Midwest Murder, and I'm hooked. Jonah and Don set the scene by telling about what occurred the year of the podcast story. Sometimes they say things that make me cringe. 
That's probably me. Uh, <laughs> not going to lie. But admittedly, that's part of what I also like about the podcast. Their chemistry, laughter, opinions, and arguing make the show the too, or so addicting. I hate waiting for the next episode to post. Me too. Super cool. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. Yeah, we appreciate that. So again, Spotify, iTunes, we love to hear those reviews. I'm also kind of curious, folks, do you have your ranch ready or your gravy? Because if you don't, you can get some good stuff at Shots Crossroads in Minot. If you happen to be in the area, you know you can leave well-fed when you go to Shots. If you're just passing through, let us remind you, Shots Crossroads has big portions, always competitive prices, and when you're getting a tank of gas, they're usually lower than the people around them, plus they offer a seven cents off per gallon when you pay with cash. Now, I don't know about you, Don, but I'm, I've kind of slid away from the ranch. I'm more into the gravy side of things now, and it's all your fault. And I still wonder like, why you have to pick. Like, I, when can I, I double when dip? I, when I go there, uh, yeah, I absolutely get fry, like ranch and gravy. And this is this is... This is my own personal like woohoo. It has nothing to do with the show. Like she's I, not been paid to say no, this. It is ranch and gravy through and through. And if you've if you if you know you know. Yeah, it's so good. And uh, I should clarify, I don't actually mix the ranch and gravy. That that would be weird. I was going to ask like, if you did It's like both. one it's fry for the gravy, and then you eat it, and then a uh, fry for the ranch, and then you eat so it. So it's no go it's to separate. shots. Double fist French fries with tubs of gravy and ranch. Top it off with an amazing pie and catch a couple of two for four dollar energy drinks on your way out. They've got it all. They hook up the great deals and Shots has built itself on consistency for the last 45 years. That is a family owned and operated business and it's awesome. So cool to them. Yeah. 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 So thanks to them. That's awesome. You can also buy us a hot dish at www.buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. You're not literally buying us a hot dish, but you're supporting the show financially because yeah, you just like want to do something nice for yeah. us. It, it it pays for our beer and pays for Don's shoes and pays for our murder cases and pays for my bullshit sometimes. So you can support us yeah. at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. Not just throwing it in our pockets. It's more for like case stuff, but cool. No, it all it all. Oh, I bought my shoes. You know, Gas what a, money. What a dick thing to say. <laughs> Come on. I want to help. I want to help you with your shoe habit, Don. Oh, your shoe it's habit. okay. Oh, it's so fun. I mean, yes. Again, I did buy some shoes today, but like true. they were, they were, whatever. Anyway, let's move on. You can also stay current with Midwest Murder live events and special announcements by following us on Facebook and Instagram. You can. Check out our merch store at tpublic.com slash stores slash Midwest Murder. There's a link to the store on our Facebook and on our Instagram. And we do have... And my personal favorite, actually, she's wearing it right there. The only thing, the only good thing that happens after... No, the only thing open. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, the only thing open after midnight are legs in hospitals. She's wearing it yeah. right there. It's my favorite. It is my favorite. And we do actually have a pretty cool announcement here tonight that you guys get to be a special part of. This won't come out publicly until next week, but this is a really big pinch me moment for Don Palumbo and I. After this show, this may be our last show at DCR Brewing Company for quite some time. So I'm, I'm sorry if that is disappointing. It doesn't mean you won't see us in Fargo because we have been booked with Jade Presents and... Yeah. Our next show in Fargo will be at Fargo Brewing Company, presented by Jade Presents, in the back room. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. stoked about it's that. Cool. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Huge. Yeah. Thank you. That yeah. will be... So look out for that from Jade and from us. And, and again, yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you, guys. We Super couldn't wild. do it without you. And, 
It's just so cool. I'm getting Jonah bumps about See, it right now. He gets now. Jonah bumps, and seriously, like he gets those a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, I promised Don I wouldn't cry up here at that part, so, <laughs> so don't make his, eye contact with me. It's his Jonah bumps, and and I just want to be pinched. Apparently, yeah. it's wild. She's right. just here to Don explain things for me. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, Keep going. Way We're... better than mansplaining. It's Don explaining. Okay? I was. I was far joking. more entertaining and too. Jonah will. He'll Jonah this out um, later. Maybe. But, maybe. Uh, I hope so. But um, if you guys caught the last episode, uh, the one that came out on Monday, when he explained what mansplaining was, and then so I, I wanted to giggle and be like, "Oh, so you mansplained what mansplaining is? Cool, cool, cool. That was what I did to you. <laughs> that that does not have the same effect on me anymore. No." Uh-uh. You can want wah yourself because, yeah. No, but all kidding aside, he it, it was a he had a good explanation for it. And he wasn't mansplaining. He was just explaining. It yeah. was good. It was, it was good. real. Today's episode takes us back barely more than a handful of years to 2015. The Star Wars franchise is reignited with The Force Awakens. It received an overwhelmingly positive response at the time, raked in billions in combined box office merchandise and sales. The Supreme Court in 2015 ruled 5-4 in favor of protecting same-sex marriage. In 2015. Yep. Only, and it only took us 10 years after Canada. So cool. Super cool. 195 countries signed the world's first accord on climate change, known as the Paris Agreement. The deaths of Walter Scott and Freddie Gray, both at the hands of police officers, fueled nationwide outcries for justice. An Amtrak train derailment in Philadelphia killed eight and injured more than 200 Amtrak passengers. The mass shooting at Charleston's historic Emmanuel Emmanuel AME Church in which a white supremacist terrorist slaughtered nine innocent people. Former New England Patriots star Aaron Hernandez was found guilty in April and sentenced to life in prison without parole after killing Odin Lloyd. The documentary on him is fabulous, by the way. Just side shout out, it's really good. Mm -hmm. In 2015, coordinated ISIS terror attacks in Paris claim 130 people in numerous attacks. China announced it would put an end to the 36-year-old regulation that limits many couples to having only one child. The majority of America in 2015 is no longer middle class. For the first time in four decades, the share of Americans living in middle-income households fell below 51%, according to an analysis of government data by the Pew Research Center. And... The number one and two songs of the year, I would never know who they were if they came on, but they're super relevant to the year. Uptown Funk, Mark Ronson featuring Bruno Mars, and Thinking Out Loud by Ed Sheeran. Okay, so two things. Um, I don't know those songs of all. Really? Like, do you live under a rock? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know what we're going to do on the way home? We're going to listen to those over and over again, and then that way you'll never forget them. And then also, other than a couple of highlights, did anything good happen in 2015 because that was like a depressing shitstorm. It, it was rough 2015 was a rough yeah, year like you, uh, you, look, you started off with good things and it's like it, and then it ended look it started with star wars people liked it <laughs> then they hate it now so no this was all bad news actually and in then ended and then ended with ed sheeran so yeah, yeah it went out so, with a bang great yeah. yeah i'm kidding he's actually pretty talented <clears throat> yeah quote if every child that lived in a home that had abuse in it, killed their parents, 
there'd be a lot of dead parents. Wow. As I researched this case, that statement from Captain Terry Hook of the Oneida County Sheriff's Office shook me to my core. I'm still coming to terms with the pit of sadness I felt at hearing those words. Quote, if every child that lived in a home that had abuse in it killed their parents, there'd be a lot of dead parents. Let that sink in. It's not often that I make a secondary listener discretion on this podcast because the intro says it all. This episode of Midwest Murder will not be for the faint of heart. Child abuse statistics in the United States are staggering, to say the least. This information is from childhelp.org. Approximately five children die every day because of child abuse. One out of three girls and one out of five boys will be sexually abused before they reach age 18. 90% of child abuse sexual, sexual child abuse victims know the perpetrator in some way. 68% are abused by a family member. Abused children are 11 times more likely to engage in criminal behavior as an adult. About 80% of 21-year-olds who were abused as children met criteria for at least one psychological disorder. And sadly, for every incident of child abuse or neglect that's reported, an estimated two incidents go unreported. And that's two incidents too many. And the tragic events of this story is far more than anyone should have to face. Those unreported incidents, they feel a little more strange in the Midwest, particularly in small towns where everyone pretty much seems to know everyone else. That aspect of small town living might give the impression there are no secrets, but we know better. Some secrets are actually willfully ignored truths, or perhaps some places are so sparsely populated, there simply aren't enough people to notice or care. Like in the tiny village of Peel, Wisconsin, with a population of just 86 people, Peel is barely a blip on the radar. Thomas Ayers, a lifelong abuser with a heinous reputation for control, thought it was the perfect place to move his family. The isolation of Peel would make it easier for him to control and dominate their lives. Peel is located in a relatively remote and forested area of northern Wisconsin, just 45 minutes south of the Canadian border and the Ottawa National Forest. The nearest city to Peel, Rhinelander, Home of the Hodag and approximately 8,000 residents is about 22 minutes away. Uh, if I'm, I'm so sorry to Wisconsin friends, but I do not know what a Hodag is. And if they're known for it, I feel like I should, I feel like I should know. I'm glad you asked. The Hodag is a, a folklore creature. It's fearsome. It resembles a, resembles a large bullhorned carnivore and it's got like horns and giant saber-toothed tiger teeth and spines that go down its back and scales. And it's a quote-unquote real creature that they 
mythically believe in in that region. And if you swing through Rhinelander, you can get a picture with it. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm probably going to appeal. Probably going to dwell too much on this clearly, so, but. Um, it's the whole okay, like Fergus Falls, you know, Otter Tail County, right? And they have a big otter. They have a big otter there. Seems right? legit, right? Yeah. So, did, like, did they? I mean, and I'm I'm just curious now. Now I'm going to have to go to Rhinelander. I, I mean, because it's it's is it so it's not it's not real. It is a mythical creature well, with you know. Is, like is Sasquatch like real? Okay. I don't know. All you right. Know? So all it's, right. It's, all it's, right. It's 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 uh, a cryptid, right? That's what they call those. So there are cryptid researchers who've gone there searching for the Hodeg. So that's another, right. that's but that is that's Rhinelander, okay? That's there. The remoteness of Peel was a key factor in why Thomas Ayers moved his wife Jennifer and their kids to Peel. It would be easier to keep his 16-year-old stepdaughter Ashley in line. His rules were to be followed no matter what. Nobody who ever met Thomas Ayers accused him of being nice. Not even his own two children, ages nine and eight. Discipline was the way of the day. Discipline for the kids, for the animals, and for his wife Jennifer if she needed it. So Jennifer brought Ashley into the marriage, and Thomas brought a pair of daughters. And they had one child together, another daughter, age two. I have a feeling I'm not going to like this guy. I mean, oh. I can already tell. I don't want to jump to conclusions, but I feel like this guy kind of sucks already. Not a winner, okay. Don Palumbo. Right. Yeah, I think All you're right. not going to be a fan of Thomas Ayers, oh, cool. even a little cool. bit. No, that's, that's good. No, it's... Before arriving in Peel, the Ayers family resided in Botno, North Dakota. For go Braves. Nearly, what go, Bra- go, oh, go Braves. Okay. Go Botno Braves. They lived there for nearly two years. Thomas worked in the oil field. Long hours, hard days, big paychecks. Everything Thomas lacked in character, empathy, kindness, and decency was, in his mind, made up for with the big paychecks he brought home. The family's departure from Botno happened in a somewhat rushed, even hushed fashion. I couldn't get details as to why, but with a guy like this, use your imagination. Do you have a hunch of why? I'm not asking you to share that hunch. I'm just curious. Of course I do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, right. he's clearly a piece of shit. So uh, th- there was bad things happening around him. All right. That's good. Thomas utilized many subversive and physically indirect forms of abusive, violent control over his family. When Ashley crossed the line, Thomas didn't put his hands on her, but he would put his hands on Jennifer. Thomas put undue, forceful pressures on Jennifer, and he made sure Ashley was aware of it. So he abused, he abused her mother and was like, see, this is your fault? Yes. Oh, man. Yep. He said, your, your transgressions. Watch what I'm going to do to your mom. Okay, this, this, this one's going to make my skin crawl. Okay, I will, I'll pipe it. Jennifer wasn't the first woman Thomas put through this. Thomas is an experienced felon with a criminal history that includes kidnapping, sexual assault, domestic violence, and child enticement, as well as drunk driving. For the smaller children, Ashley's stepsisters, every wrongdoing meant punishment in the form of a spanking or worse, lashings with a belt. 
Even though Thomas had no legal right to own firearms, he had plenty, and he made threats toward the children with his weapons. Casual threats, watch out, or I might use that gun on you type of shit. He was careless with the firearms. It wasn't unusual for loaded guns to be casually laying around the house. Sometimes, Thomas made Ashley watch him paddle her stepsisters. Sometimes, he spanked them for reasons none of them really understood. But always, Thomas made sure Ashley knew it was her fault he was beating the younger girls, or in his terms, giving them proper discipline. So he singled her out. Like, so... Because uh, probably because he was or she was his stepdaughter. Right. You know, then it's he, he singled her out for whatever hateful reason. Well, and possibly the only person in the household that might be willing to challenge him or stand up sure. to him in any, yeah. so in maybe, any maybe simple he was, way. He was threatened or, or something. Uh, yeah. For sure. He yeah. he she was tampering with his control and he didn't like it. Thomas's verbal maltreatment of Ashley was regular and while Thomas never put a finger on Ashley, that didn't make his performances of cruelty any less painful. During one of his twisted punishment ceremonies, Thomas Ayers forced the children to watch a mother dog as he executed her puppies. He specifically wanted the children to see the dog's reaction to him murdering its babies. Okay. For Ashley, Thomas was just another in a long line of awful men her mother Jennifer brought into their lives. As a child, Ashley distinctly remembers the discomfort of being tucked into bed by her mother's boyfriends, or worse, given a bath or sharing a bed when mom wasn't there. Why doesn't my mom tuck me in, she wondered. At the age of eight, after being used as target practice for a BB gun, Ashley Martinson was raped by her mom's boyfriend and his friend. The traumatic event triggered a lifelong cycle of cutting and other forms of self-harm. I mean, can you, can you even question why? I, Not even a little bit, no. It's... Are you, will you explain, like, I... I have not read this, obviously. Are you going to explain what kind of trauma her mom has endured? I did not have that background information okay. about okay. what her mom and went through. I know I should save that for the Q&A. No, but, it's, it's, but, it's fair. But clearly, she had to have gone through some shit in her life to, I don't, don't want to say allow it, because I would hope that a, a parent doesn't allow that, but... Yeah, I mean, not, not to run the other way, you know, yeah. and, and to, to even put your kids in, in harm's way, you know. It, it, and sadly, Jennifer did just that. Oh, man. It's a wonder Ashley's self-inflicted wounds didn't catch the attention of teachers and administrators at school. According to at least one witness from Botno, the signs were obvious. Self-harm was one of Ashley's hobbies. She was huge into self-harm. At one point, there was a large spot on her right thigh that was always an open wound after she put a cigarette out on it. She was cutting all over her arms. 
Ashley described herself to at least one friend as a masochist who enjoyed self-inflicting pain. Ashley would burn herself with Yankee candles. She was a very self-destructive teen. Well, because she's been taught nothing nothing else but that she wasn't worthy of anything. So, of course, she's going to self-harm. Oh, that poor baby. If self-inflicted injuries weren't enough cause for alarm and somehow managed to go unnoticed, Ashley's stories from creative writing class in Botno could not have been missed. She wrote intricately detailed, graphic, sexual, and masochistic horror stories. Sure, it could be viewed as creative expression. Ashley was a talented writer who loved horror and Stephen King novels. But these writings should have been shown to a counselor. Perhaps these were contributing factors in the sudden departure of the Ayers family from Botno. But if there was pressure on Thomas Ayers and his family from the school or social services or any government agency, I could not find documentation of it. The abusive home life didn't make things easy for the younger kids in elementary school, and they had many issues with getting bullied. Whatever the impetus, Thomas Ayers was in control. And sometime in late 2013, early 2014, he moved the family to Peel, where he left them two weeks on and two weeks off when he went to work in the oil field. As the shitty living situation and isolation continued, Ashley's grades took a nosedive. But she did manage to get a job and make at least one friend, a young boy who lived nearby. Once she was employed... Thomas forced Ashley to pay rent, insurance, and put gas in the vehicle. He allowed her to I'm sorry, borrow. How, how old was he? Or how old was she again? She's 15 right now. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. A, yeah, self-sustaining adult. 100%. Yeah. And that didn't leave Ashley with a lot of extra money. And to her, it didn't matter. The job was an escape from living in hell with Thomas Ayers. In early March of 2015, Ashley Martinson was planning to move out of her parents' residence and into the home of her friend, Chambry Towns. On the morning of March 6th, 2015, the 16th birthday of Ashley Martinson, she sent the following message to her boyfriend, 22-year-old Ryan Sisko, quote, I woke up this morning to my stepdad beating my mom. I can't take that shit anymore. He's going to kill her if she doesn't leave soon. And I don't want to be around when that happens. I've been trying to get her. She just got two jobs now. Before, she had no money because my stepdad spent it all. Now, I think she is going to leave once the money starts coming in. I fucking hate them too. I want to kill him so fucking bad. Just take one of his guns, and blow his fucking brains out. Ashley thought her mom was screaming for her life that morning. On March 7th, Jennifer and Thomas inspected Ashley's Facebook messages. They were not pleased to discover Ashley was dating a 22-year-old man, Ryan Sisko. Thomas used Ashley's account to send a message to Ryan threatening they were going to call the cops and send him to jail if Ryan didn't stay the hell away from Ashley. 
Thomas and Jennifer confronted Ashley about her older boyfriend. There was a loud argument, and the parents took away Ashley's cell phone and car keys. Allegedly, Jennifer argued that Ashley be allowed to go and live with Chambry, but Thomas wasn't having it. He declared Ashley was on house arrest and would now be homeschooled. The little kids did their best to stay out of the way and ignore the commotion. There was always arguing, always yelling, and always someone in trouble. Frustrated, Ashley hastily grabbed some personal belongings and left the house on foot, making her way toward the residence of neighbor and friend John Rasmussen, but she didn't make it far. Thomas Ayers followed in his truck, caught up with Ashley just down the road, and directed her to get in the vehicle and return home. En route, Thomas Ayers said, It's in your best interests to stay in the house. His tone was stern and forceful. When the two arrived home, Ashley stormed inside the house. Jennifer and the step-siblings were watching cartoons on the couch. Ashley hardly noticed them. She ran upstairs to her bedroom and slammed the door shut. The wide-eyed children were intent on their cartoon, but they heard and saw everything. Thomas came in a couple minutes later. He and Jennifer exchanged a few heated words before he demanded to know where Ashley was. When Jennifer told Thomas she was in her bedroom, Thomas said she's probably doing something stupid and made his way upstairs. Inside her bedroom, while her family sat watching cartoons downstairs, Ashley sat on her bed with a loaded 12-gauge shotgun, crying, waiting, ready to finally let it all go. Oh my to gosh. end her life by suicide. Why, why didn't somebody intervene? Why had nobody intervened? Usually we can say it was 1992, people kept their noses out of other people's houses, but this is 20-fucking-15. This is, this is not even a decade ago. Seven years. It, nobody gave a shit. The signs were there and who knows it, it seems perhaps Thomas moved them a lot to avoid that kind of thing. Boom, boom, boom. Jennifer and the children heard Thomas pound on Ashley's bedroom door for a moment. Silence. Then. Ashley's door opened with a creak. Thomas said something inaudible. Bang! The roar of a fired shotgun was unmistakable to Jennifer's ears. What the fuck, she said, and started up the stairs. Seconds later, nine-year-old Anne heard her stepmother, Jennifer, screaming and crying. It wasn't the first time Anne heard her stepmother cry or scream, but this was different. Something was terribly wrong. The commotion upstairs got louder. Anne curiously got off the couch, told her eight-year-old sister to stay put, and went to see what was happening. Anne made it far enough up the stairs to see her father laying at the top of the hallway. His head was bloody. Jennifer and Ashley were viciously fighting over a decorative knife. It was an all-out battle for survival. Get back downstairs, Jennifer yelled at her, and the little girl fled from the sounds of Jennifer's painful screams. They didn't last long. Once the screams faded, 
there was only the sound of cartoons and Ashley sobbing until, bang, another shotgun blast. The stairs creaked as Ashley made her way down. She was carrying Thomas's shotgun and a bloody knife matted with hair. Ashley not only actively bled from several wounds of her own, she was covered in the blood of her own mother. Why are you bleeding? The children asked her. Ashley told her step-siblings everything was fine. I fell down the stairs and cut myself. Stay here and watch cartoons while I take a shower. Afraid of what may happen, if they didn't listen, the girls did as they were told. Ashley showered twice. Afterward, she corralled the three girls, ages 9, 8, and 2, into one of the downstairs bedrooms. We're pretending camping, Ashley told them, supplying the children with juice boxes and snacks. She then left the room and closed the door. The door was next to the bottom of a stairwell. Ashley tied a cord around the door handle and the other end around the handle of the stairs, locking the children in. On the morning of Sunday, March 8th, the 911 dispatch in the city of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, received three hang-up calls from a cell phone. A fourth call came in, and this time, when the dispatcher said, 911, where's the emergency? The tiny, frightened voice of a nine-year-old girl replied, At my home. Where's the emergency? At my house, the tiny voice replied more assertively and then hung up. Fortunately, the dispatch team was able to trace the call to a residence at 1625 County C in Peel, the home of Jennifer and Thomas Ayers, along with their four children, Jennifer's daughter, Ashley, age 17, Thomas's daughters, ages 8 and 9, and a mutual child, age 2. An officer from Three Lakes, Wisconsin, just eight minutes north of Peel, was sent to investigate the 911 call. He arrived on scene just 10 minutes later. When nobody answered the door, he entered the premises. It was immediately clear horrific violence had occurred in the one-and-a-half-story home. Partially up the stairs lay the blood-stained, slashed-up, and clearly deceased body of Jennifer Ayers. The stairway beneath her was soaked in blood. It was splattered across the wall and stair railing. A bloody jawbone lay on one of the uppermost steps, which evidently belonged to the body at the top of the stairs because there was nothing left of the head. The bloody trail of homicide started from the top and worked its way down the stairs, through the living room, and into the kitchen. You couldn't look anywhere in the living room without seeing something that had bloodstains, the lamps, furniture, TV, even the remote controls. Clearly, no effort was made to hide the horrors that took place inside the heir's home in those violent moments. Nine-year-old Anne, the tiny voice on the other end of the 911 call, was found alive along with her two sisters, ages eight and two. Oh, those poor babies. So they... They, they... <sighs> they made it. Yes, they were safe. I wouldn't think that they would be in harm's way, you know, just even the way that this was, this was going, certainly not in harm's way. So but, that was, yeah. Oh, but the nut, but I just, I just think of those three babies just sitting in there by themselves, not being able to get out, you know, and, and Eventually, thank God they had a cell phone. 
eventually. So they, they, they were able to jimmy their way out and actually oh. find that cell phone. They, they oh. waited a long oh. time. So they stayed in there. They were watching cartoons. And you've got a nine, eight, and two-year-old. And they were oh. able to kind of squeeze out the door. Right. And they found that cell phone. Yeah. it, it oh. Once the kids were secure... The Oneida County Special Response Team was called to the heir's home. They quickly obtained a warrant. While Ashley's sisters were brought to safety and interviewed, investigators began processing the brutal crime scene. There was no lack of physical evidence throughout the house. A blood-soaked, hair-matted knife in the kitchen sink, bloody hand and fingerprints, the 12-gauge shotgun and shell casings. In a bathroom... Police found blood and hair on a folding knife atop a counter next to the sink. On the floor of the bathroom, a black beanie, also with blood and hair on it. Numerous bandage wrappers and a needle were found in a bathroom garbage can, along with another shell casing. In the basement, under a laundry chute, investigators found blunt, blood-stained clothes, a torn pair of pink and black jeans, a black hooded sweatshirt, a black long sleeve shirt with a white skull graphic on the front, and a towel. On Martinson's bed, there was a broken necklace containing possible blood. In the kitchen garbage, an iPhone with blood stains, and in the dining room, a bloody TV remote. Multiple weapons were located, including a shotgun on the floor of Martinson's bedroom, a rifle in the kitchen, and another bloody knife. The bodies of Jennifer and Thomas Ayers told their own story. Jennifer Ayers was stabbed dozens of times all over her body. Her arms, hands, legs, face, everywhere. She was stabbed so many times and with so much force, the flooring beneath her body was damaged. The body of Thomas Ayers was mostly headless. The carnage of two close-range shotgun blasts to the head and neck didn't leave much behind. His brain matter was plastered on the walls and ceiling of the upstairs hallway. Moving into Ashley's room, investigators discovered morbid, horror-themed drawings of skulls. Her work was referred to as demonic. The posters covering her walls matched the theme of Ashley's artwork. Investigators quickly gained access to her computer and discovered Ashley was a popular horror blogger who went by the handle Vamp Chick. Ashley's blog was graphic. The opening page welcomed everybody by saying, Welcome to the nightmare. If you are ready, I will paint the streets red just for you. This is one of the poems from Ashley Martinson's original blog. Blood stains my fingerprints, screams inside my head, whispers in the shadow, death waits upon the eve. I've come to love the darkness, the night is when I feed. Black it is my very soul, the devil kneels to me, but like a stone my heart was thrown into hell for eternity. Caused by thy, cursed by thy maker, made to live among the dead, collecting souls had, has made me old, get death is what I'm fed. I die to live tomorrow, for a heart beneath my breast, I chase it all in sorrow, never reaching my own death. So that's what they wandered into on her blog. And that was just one of several poems that she had on there. So of, of course, I mean, it, it starts as, you know, if you were walking into that scene, obviously you're not going to, you're going to think that she was a 
psychopath. I mean, you're in a town of 86 people. So it's, right. yeah, it's a kind of probably right. an unusual site by far. For sure. Yeah. 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 As part of the evidence, investigators collected numerous posters, drawings, art, and sketchbooks, notes, as well as a journal from Ashley's bedroom. National media assailed the small town. Teen horror blogger murders parents and flees with boyfriend. Of course, we know there is so much more to the story. But juicy headlines get clicks and sell papers. The truth takes time. Over the next few hours, investigators quickly traced Ashley's steps. Following the murders, Ashley took Thomas Ayer's truck, showed up sometime around midnight to her friend John Rasmussen's house, and asked him to take care of her puppy, a five-month-old German shepherd. The dog looked like it was recently bathed. After that, Ashley picked up her 22-year-old boyfriend, Ryan Sisko. Where they were going was anyone's guess. A multi-state APB went out for the truck, along with pictures of Ashley and Ryan. Ashley didn't make it far. The truck was stopped Sunday evening on an Indiana highway. The patrolman knew exactly who she was, but didn't immediately reveal that to Ashley when he asked her to come back to his vehicle. Then he said, quote, Do you know why you're being brought in? I assume it's for what you guys are calling the murder, replied Ashley. Yeah, it's for the investigation of that. I didn't mean to kill her. Ashley was brought in without incident. Prior to that moment, Ryan Sisko had no idea Ashley Martinson murdered her mother and stepfather. He was not believed to be associated with the killings. When she was brought in for the interview, Ashley initially denied shooting Thomas. The story she relayed to investigators went like this. Ashley was on the couch downstairs with her stepsisters. Thomas and Jennifer were upstairs fighting. Her stepdad was going berserk. She heard gunshots and ran upstairs to discover her mom standing over Thomas's body with a shotgun. Ashley wanted her mom to put the gun down, but Jennifer refused and started yelling at Ashley, blaming her for Thomas's murder. The two started fighting. Ashley struggled to take the gun. Then Jennifer grabbed a knife and came after her. Ashley thought her mom was trying to kill her. Investigators let Ashley tell her story, even though they knew she was lying. When she was finished, detectives told her, Your sisters were with your mom, and they remember her saying, What the fuck was that? We know your mom was with them when the gunshots went off. Ashley broke down in tears, eventually relaying her actual version of the truth to investigators. Quote, I was sitting on my bed with a loaded shotgun. The gun was in my mouth. I was going to pull the trigger, and then I heard my stepdad. He was pounding on the door, screaming. I was afraid of what would happen when he found me with his precious gun. When the door opened, I pulled the trigger. When her mom came running upstairs, Ashley was crying and distraught, hoping to be consoled by her mother. Instead of consoling her daughter, according to Ashley, Jennifer flipped out, grabbed a nearby knife, and attacked her. The next thing Ashley knew, she was fighting for her life against her mother. Ashley managed to wrestle the knife free and blacked out while stabbing her mom. I didn't mean to kill her. 
A forensic pathologist later placed the number of stab wounds at more than 35. Ashley Martinson was charged with two counts of first-degree intentional homicide and three counts of false imprisonment. Oh, false imprisonment. Oh, okay. For the, for the babies, yeah, yeah know, the three I know, kids. I know, That Ashley Martinson killed her mother and stepfather would not come under question what the court had to determine were the circumstances which led to such tragedy and whether Ashley's life was imminently threatened in the moments preceding the murders. The official record shows a lifetime of exposure to sexual, physical, mental, and emotional abuse at the hands of virtually every adult that Ashley Martinson had more than incidental contact with. Abuse from her mom's boyfriend that began when she was eight, started off with touching, she was raped by nine, burned, burned her with cigarettes, threw things at her, and Jennifer was aware of the abuse, even complicit. She allowed the boyfriend to tuck her in and to bathe her. In court, members of Thomas Ayer's family acknowledged he exercised control over others, including intimate partners throughout his whole life. That he was abusive was no secret to his family. In fact, some family members weren't surprised by the end result of his life. Nobody really had anything nice to say about Thomas Ayers. I, I'm, his own family. I, right. I, I mean, that's a, that's a testament to a, a person's character. I don't know what is. Ashley's step-siblings also acknowledged the horrific truths of hard, violent spankings, animal murder, and abuse of their stepmother. Martinson and the state entered into a plea agreement whereby the state agreed to amend charges of first-degree intentional homicide to those of second-degree intentional homicide based upon the mitigating circumstance of adequate provocation. Heading into sentencing, the defense team felt they made a strong case for leniency. The judge recognized a battery of interviews and evaluations from two separate doctors equally determined Ashley suffers from or suffered at the time of the offenses with major depressive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. There is no indication that she suffers from psychopathy or mental illness. Doctors were also in agreement that Ashley Martinson suffered from reasonable fear of future violence to herself and others and also possessed a reasonable belief that she had no other options. Well, it's nice that somebody finally showed up for her Yeah, little, after the fact. A little late to the game. The court believed that Ashley was not a danger to the public. Of her, quote, demonic drawings and horror writings, the court said, quote, There are many young people who are apparently fascinated by this type of entertainment or art. I don't necessarily know what to make of that, but I do not see these aspects of the defendant's behavior and activity prior to these events as being an underlying cause of what happened here. So some sense, sensible there in For regards sure. to her dark art form. Well, all I can say is, you know, I mean, if it, regardless of the incident happening, I mean, I mean that in and of itself is, is awful, but 
Thank God it happened in 2015 because if it had happened in the 80s or 20, something, 30 yeah. years earlier, oh my gosh, there would have been absolutely no compassion for her or her situation whatsoever. No, not with that kind of artwork. No, they, they would have, no. it yeah, would be, they would have jumped know, to those conclusions yeah, immediately. Metallica maybe do it, you know, kind of bullshit. Yeah. Right. Quote, I believe it's true to say that while the quality of your life was severely affected by the continuing presence of Thomas Ayers, your life itself was not threatened. You did have a choice. There is justification in the record in this case for showing mercy to the defendant and justice must be tempered by mercy, but justice cannot be replaced by mercy. Where was her justice though? Where was her justice? Non-existent. Non-existent from any person in her life ever, it seems. At sentencing in June of 2016, facing as much as 80 years in prison, Ashley Martinson was sentenced to 23 years of confinement, followed by 17 years of extended supervision. A sentencing appeal was filed. There was a fair amount of effort by national media to soften the attitude and public image toward Ashley. Her appeal worked to make a strong case for post-sentencing relief. In 2018, Ashley Martinson was interviewed by Crime Watch Daily. On the moments following the first gunshot, Ashley said, quote, I started running. My mom grabbed the decorative knife that was on a shelf, and the next thing I knew, the knife was in my leg. It was like a movie reel went off in my head, like a flash of memories of all the things that happened to me that she put me through. I remember stabbing her once, twice, and then I blacked out. The next thing I knew, there's blood everywhere. I looked up and saw Thomas. Seeing him scared me more. I thought he was going to get up, and I was scared of what he was going to do. I put the gun up against his head and pulled the trigger. Boom. In that moment, I felt the chains break from around me. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was free. He couldn't hurt anyone anymore. Quote, I never felt safe. I never felt cared for. I'm happy, and I know this sounds crazy because I'm in prison, but I feel like I'm free. I can wake up every day and know that I'm safe. I'm not a monster. I never meant any of this to happen. That doesn't make it right. But I was just a girl, an abused girl who was forced to make a really bad decision. I'm not the monster they portrayed me to be. In 2019, Ashley Martinson's appeal was denied. So no... Nothing. No, no relief. 23 years, 17 on parole, you know, strict parole afterward. So there was no reduction of sentence whatsoever then. No. So, well, I mean, to, they, they, I mean, they consider the reduction from a potential of 80 sure. to 23. That in their right. mind was the reduction. So 23 years and then 17 years on paper. Yeah. Some of the details in this story came from an exclusive source who provided information that has never been heard before. While researching this case, I went digging for answers in Botno, North Dakota. I was curious about the abrupt departure of the Ayers family, and a rumor I encountered that the move was brought on by potential social services inquiries. 
While I wasn't able to confirm or deny those rumors, I was introduced to a woman named Angie Reinhold, the best friend of Ashley Martinson during her time living in Botano, North Dakota. Of her more than two-year friendship with Ashley Martinson, Angie Reinhold said, quote, It was the most horrific time of my life. I didn't realize how bad it was until I looked back on it years later. I didn't realize what was happening. Looking back, I don't know why I didn't run. She was genuinely just fucking crazy. The two met in middle school. Well, that's a change in events here. Oh, yeah. Okay. The two met in middle school. Angie described herself as a quiet, weird girl with no friends. In fact, at the age of 14, the first friend and eventually the first sleepover Angie ever had was Ashley Martinson. The following quotes are from the interview I conducted with Angie earlier this year. Ashley and I were super, super, super close for years, for a long time. I had to go to therapy. I endured years of physical, psychological, and sexual abuse from her. Ashley was a ticking time bomb. If it hadn't been her parents, it would have been someone else down the road. I didn't have any other friends, so I didn't have anywhere to go. But she was just fucking crazy. Ashley fully believed she was sent from another world to do, I don't know what, She always talked about murdering someone. She took herself very, very seriously. Ashley was artsy. She wrote a lot. When we were hanging out, we'd watch horror movies. She actually introduced me to horror movies. She was into creepypastas. For the record, I had to look that up. Creepypastas are horror-related legends that have been shared around the internet. Like... So urban legends? Yeah, I guess. Creepypastas, I'm modern. Sorry, am I, am yeah. I that old? Like, it, it's, it's a fucking urban legend, yep. right? Creepypasta? I, like, that sounds like a dad joke. Yep. Um, almost. Like, it's a, you know. Dad joke, dog joke. They're like imposta. the same sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's an urban legend, right? Yep. Okay. I think. Around the age of 14, Angie recalls Ashley talking about killing someone. Angie, you live in the woods. You know, we could get a bear trap. I never took her fully seriously until all of the abuse started happening. She was a monster. She would beat me and hit me. And I was a depressed queer teen. So Ashley, at points, tried to encourage me to kill myself. The reason I didn't run away or leave or tell people about it was because... She was my first friend at 14. I had never had a friend before. She was my first sleepover. Suddenly, there was a person here who wanted to be my friend. At that age, everything was so fragile. I've always been heavier set. Nobody's ever going to love you. You're disgusting. You should just kill yourself, Ashley would tell tell her. The worst thing she ever did to me. Quote, this is really gross. We were at 15, we were 15 at this point. Ashley got me blackout drunk and then 
Do you remember that Omigo craze when you could video chat with strangers? A chat room that paired you randomly with someone from anywhere in the world? Ashley sexually assaulted me and streamed it to strangers when I was passed out. She was a monster. Oh, gosh. I didn't tell anybody about it. I had no friends, and I, you know, this is like a few, a year, year and a half into our friendship. I was an insecure, super depressed person who didn't have anyone to turn to. She was over at my house. I put an end to it. I woke up. Jesus Christ, what's going on? Ashley was alone a lot of the time. She would read about witchcraft. She was very, very into witchcraft. She had a jar that she showed me one time. I don't know what it was. It was a spell or a hex or a protection thing. It was a jar fermenting with rose petals, and it was brown and disgusting. She tried to give it to me. Like, give it to her, like, like, for, like feed it to her? Or, like, uh, or give, give it to her, her like, here's give, a gift? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Made, had her take it, and Angie's family's super, super, super religious. Oh, oh, sure, okay. We would go to Tommy Turtle Park. There was a huge cemetery, and she always wanted to hang out at the cemetery. Ashley would ask me if I heard the voices. She claimed to hear whispers, and she would whisper at me, Do you hear the voices? Okay, no, don't ever do that again. And, and, and second of all, if you've, been to, if you've seen Tommy the Turtle, it's a giant turtle. In Botno, North Dakota, it's a giant turtle. Giant. Who, and he's on a snowmobile, and he's got a backpack. So it's, it's, he's old buddies with the hoed egg. It's, it's no, like turtles are real. Um, Not ones but, that ride snowmobiles. No, but it is Turtle Mountains, no. right? Up in that area in Botno. So if, so Turtle Mountains, Tommy the Turtle, he's on a snowmobile. For those of you who have not been there, it's something. It's worthy of yeah. an explanation. It is. Yeah. Thanks for Don-splaining that. Well, all I did was fucking explain it because not everybody's been there. So thanks. Ashley had a seance at the grave of an eight-year-old girl, Lucy R.L. Shear. She put candles around it and rocks. She told me, I want to do a seance, Angie. She was trying to psych me out and freak me out that a ghost was attached to me and going to make my life a living hell. We were freshmen when the seance happened. It was really, really weird. My parents had no idea. I come from a religious household. My dad would tell stories about Ouija boards. He would have flipped a lid if he knew I was in the cemetery. Ashley wholly believed that she that what she was doing was genuine and real. Whenever I think about her, I think about that Slenderman murder case. Wow. Angie acknowledged that Ashley was a full-on believer of the supernatural. Quoting still, she wholly believed for years that she was a demon possessed from another world. She tried convincing me too. She thought she had powers like a clairvoyant. She told me that I had this whole backstory. At the time, I thought maybe she was LARPing, but for her, it seemed so real to her. Sorry, can you explain what LARPing is? Live action role playing. Ah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Totally knew that. Um, this came from uh, on confronting because I, I asked her if she ever confronted Ashley about the abuse. Quote, Ashley was a good gaslighter. If I did bring up something, she would say, oh, you're remembering it wrong. I felt like I was going crazy. Your stepdad has so many guns. 
you know, Angie, you could just go out in the woods and shoot yourself. I was a fragile young teen. Looking back at our friendship, it's not something I'm proud of. Quote, looking back, I don't know why I didn't run. She was genuinely just fucking crazy. Well, she didn't run because she was a victim. I, I mean, that's that's not her... That's not her blame to take either. No, it's not. It's not. Sources for this episode, the exclusive interview with Angie Reinel, law.justia.com, acefiling.wicourts.gov, ashleymartinson.wordpress.com. Quote, they called her Vampchick, Vampchick, story by Crime Watch Daily. The Warsaw Daily Herald, stories by Allison Durr, Nora G. Hertel, and Peter Watson. The River News online story by Jonathan Anderson. The timeline from theage.com and from abcnews.go. This, hang on. Hang on. Yep. Before we, I, 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 hang on. Do you suppose, I mean, you know, the, the, the way that, that her, her friend portrayed her, I mean, obviously, she was absolutely a victim. One one hundred percent, her friend was. You know, even explaining the horrific abuse that she endured from Ashley, right? Like that—that's far from okay. I've been in a friendship that is like toxic; doesn't even cover it. You know, that isn't that is even that's severely. It, it's not des- describing that, and you know, well enough, right? It, because Ashley picked an insecure teen and preyed upon her. She yeah. did. Yeah. Yes. Because she herself was because she herself was, so herself was yeah. right. So I mean, she was trying to escape her reality, and and because she because, because she it. was groomed to be an evil person and subjecting herself. And I mean, can you blame her for thinking that she was supernatural, right? Or or I mean, again, she was trying to live in a different reality because her current reality reality was bullshit. Something that nobody should ever have to deal with ever no, ever ever. I, I don't know. I mean, and then one question, do you, do you think Ashley's story about her mom's reaction was, was accurate where her mom, you know, her mom went to then stab her as well? It's, it's hard to tell. I, I I believe it was. And and I, I believe in Ashley's mind, she was, was finally killing this horrible figure in in their life, which, which Thomas Ayers were, uh, was on many levels. And, in her mind, she was trying to free not just herself, I believe, but the whole family. The whole and family, right. She essentially, her mom, very much responsible for a lot of the abuse that she went through. She was our, looking Our to, job yeah, as parents is it, to protect our children. One, looking to be consoled in that moment. Yeah. And, and, and Ashley saw her, her dead husband, or um, excuse me, Jennifer saw her dead husband and, and, and lost it. Well, and Jennifer was, I mean, as much of a victim as, as any of them. Yeah, to some level. One other question. Yeah. This is the last one. Do you do you think Ashley would have been maybe her appeal would have been denied or been uh, uh, granted, or she would have been had a better approval or whatever, been viewed better if she had not locked the kids in the room? No, I think I, if she I, if she had saved it, like if she had you know, like taking the girl or taking the kids or, or even just called the called law enforcement right there. Do you, do you think that she would have been viewed differently? 
it's hard to say. Because it's 2015. Yeah, Again, yeah, it's not it, 1985. So it's, it, I mean. I, it's, it's really hard to say. I think if she had not also murdered her mom, I believe she would have gotten a lot of leniency for the murder of Thomas Ayers. And I, I think it, when they considered this, it was the extent to which she killed her mom. It, you know, it wasn't, she just killed her. It, it, it was her mom allowed her to be abused regardless of whether she was, you know, actually allowing it, but by just standing by or, or whatever her mother allowed it. Her, Her mother was complicit. Yes. She really, according to everything that I could find to on some level, her, her mother was turning the cheek. Right. Hmm. Uh, This, this episode was written by Jonah Lanto. The Midwest murder is produced by the good talk network. Please do subscribe, like, and and review us on iTunes as well as on Spotify. And thank you Fargo very much. We'll see you soon at, Fargo Brewing Company, presented by J Presents.